0: You know, I, I, I appreciated the opportunity to struggle and have a challenge. You know, you listen to the great stories of our grandparents that have gone through wars, and obviously this is nothing on that. But I really feel like you learn your lessons as a person, as a workplace culture, as a community culture, having gone through struggle together. You know, easy street, everyone becomes lazy.
1: Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading to Albury-Wodonga, the New South Wales-Victorian border, which Premier Daniel Andrews and New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian have just announced will be opened on November 23. That is so exciting. It's felt so weird as a Victorian, well, as a Melbourneian. festival, to not be able to go beyond 5K at the moment, not beyond 25K. And uh, even after that, is loosened uh my leash will still not let me get over the new south wales border but i'm excited to think that that is going to change to talk about this and other matters we are checking in with jacob walkie jacob owns cycle station which is a bike store um, and also a cafe but he does so much more as well he's a farmer he's opening a butcher and jake i'm just so excited to have you on the show thanks for coming along to have a chat
0: yeah thanks for having me danny always ready to talk
1: Yeah, good. Well, that's what we love on this podcast. It's all about the chat. Uh, So um, let's start with the reopening of the border. Tell me what it's been like to have that border closed and how you're feeling about it reopening.
0: Look, it's been such a long journey over the last few months that we've settled into so many different stages of new normal. So, you know, going going right back to the start when we didn't even know if we're going to be allowed to stay open and, and thankfully we were like we're very grateful that we were allowed to trade albeit in a limited capacity you know takeaway only um you know obviously no dine in, and, and everything was was heavily restricted but just so thankful that we're able to keep going in some capacity to think about all the different versions of bubble extensions and lockdowns and rules and then the two different borders having Aubrey Wodonga having different sets of rules to all the way to there's finally like a finish point, like a goalpost in sight. I'm just glad I'm not going to be have to trawling the internet trying to catch up with the latest (laughs) guidelines and and best practice. I'm sick of (laughs) trying to figure out how to be compliant.
1: You know, it's such a good point that you raise. I mean, the rules are one thing, but finding out the rules and working out how to apply them and I guess also reading into the rules like well what do they mean by this what do they actually what's what do they want us to do here I mean it's I think you, you sort of realize over and over again that our society obviously is not set up for a pandemic in these and the restrictions that go with it but it is exhausting to to just keep uh yeah keep dealing with all the different things we've needed to deal with isn't it
0: yeah, absolutely. One of the most taxing things for me through the whole process has been trying to, um, you know, keep my workforce um, informed and staff coming to work, you know, maybe ScoMo or Dan Andrews has a comment on the 6 p.m. news and we're all turning up to work. The next day I'm getting messages on Facebook from my staff that night going, well, what are we doing? What's the rules? And I'm thinking, well, you just watched the same press release I did. Like, you know, there's this there's this perception from... Um, you know, just to society, I guess, whether it be customers or staff, that business owners have some sort of uh, direct line to the government where we get all this crystal clear information. But all of our all of our info has come from, you know, second party news sources, nothing. All the information that was actually released on government websites was generally notoriously late, extremely uh, vague and, and hard to find. And, and when we did actually have some clarification on things like the border crossing in Aubrey Bodonga, obviously with twin cities either side of the Murray River, and I had a lot of staff on, on each side of the border, and when they actually did release a clear way to get your border permit to cross to come to work, the website kept crashing for you know two or three days, so when the government actually does come up with the info, it just doesn't work anyway.
1: That is, yeah, so strange. I mean, even to see photos of, or, yeah, images of the signage, you know, no entry to New South Wales, big fines. Like, it's so, it just doesn't feel like our Australia, does it?
0: No, it's very bizarre. And having staff that want to come to work and cannot come to work, like, that has to be one of the most, I guess, like, demoralizing um, situations for people. You know, I had staff that took themselves. Uh, they basically resigned because they couldn't get to work. They were stuck over in the wrong postcode in Victoria and we're in the, we're on the Aubrey side, New South Wales side. They couldn't get to work. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was no communication as to when they will be able to get to work. So they resigned and hopped onto Job Seeker and started looking for a job on that side of the border.
1: Oh, that's um, terrible.
0: You know, like that's a really it's a really tough thing for people to do, but Just quietly, we've hired them all back now, so we're ready to go.
1: (laughs) Shouldn't keep that one quiet. Should be shouting that from the rooftops. That's awesome.
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know. Are we allowed to? Are we allowed to give people separation certificates to put them on job seeker and then rehire them later? I don't know. You just got to play by the government's rules, I guess.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that one specifically, but it doesn't sound. I mean, you know, they resigned for a reasonable reason and then they're the people that you want back, so it sounds like it should be fine. It sounds like a good news story to me.
0: Yeah, it's what we're forced to do, so you know, just happy to have the team back on board.
1: Yeah, incredible. Well, Jake, tell us like set the scene for us, like explain your various businesses and the things that you do.
0: Absolutely. We've got we've got a fair bit going on under the banner and um, every time I every time I riff through it and let like when I meet people New new friends and stuff, and I tell them what we do. I, I listen to myself, and I feel like I'm lying. It's just such a weird, <laughs> such a weird setup. I'm like, geez, you talk rubbish. But this is my life. Okay, so almost ten years ago, I purchased a bicycle shop with my parents. Five years into that, the bicycle shop had grown heaps, uh, just through you know a um, bit of good fortune and ha- a lot of hard work. And we purchased a lawn bowling club in town that was derelict and state owned. So we purchased that, we demolished it, and we built a custom. Uh, purpose-built bicycle store and we decided to put a cafe in it and we've actually been in hospitality it's what actually brought us to the region as a family 40 50 years ago and my family said never again you know too much cleaning too many early mornings too many late nights not interested uh and we decided we wanted a cafe in there you know the latte culture going together with the bike culture and we approached yeah. two real estate agents that were customers in the bike store to um to represent the store and to find us a tenant being a cafe to go in there. And both real estate agents laughed at us and said, it's a horrible location. Don't even bother. Just sell bikes, stick to what you know. And we, you know, didn't like that response. And we thought, you know what, we're just going to have to do it ourselves. And you know, the irony is, is both of those real estate agents are in multiple times a week, having meetings with customers, which I just think is hysterical. And we've got such, a, got such a beautiful little spot there. We've created like an outdoor courtyard. We're right next door to the local heritage listed railway station. So the cafe has been going about five years. Uh, we also have a 45 hectare farm about 15 minutes out of town where we uh, regeneratively farm beef, pork, chicken, eggs, honey, vegetables, fruit. We do the whole gamut and direct sales as well as um, supplying the farm so we've got the paddock to plate story and then during the start of COVID when the Vic government limited the staffing of the abattoirs we really hemorrhaged in our cash flow at the farm because we couldn't get any of our beef off to our um, customers mm-hmm. and I was trying to figure out a way around that and had a few other you know little things that my processor being my butcher uh, and I just weren't it wasn't, a, it wasn't a really easy relationship. Like We really respect each other, and the butcher that was looking after me, he's a really good dude, but he had his business to run, and I might have wanted my beef hung longer to age longer. I'm, I might have wanted something smoked or cured without preservatives and without nitrites or something, and it just wasn't what he was into. And I thought, this is too hard. We're all about the path of least resistance as a, as a company, so we just bought a butchery, um, and we've had a few days operating, but we're ready to go uh, 12th of this month, so in about 10 days we are – full steam ahead, and we're focusing on cutting and packaging uh, beasts for farmers and then facilitating them selling that direct to their customers. So we don't really have our headlights set on an open door butchery where you can walk in and buy your snags and, and your cuts for dinner. We're all about having a processing center to you know, strengthen the local food system and really help farmers build that direct connection with their customers and that resilience into their businesses.
1: Incredible. So I guess the, the link in the chain that I'm not quite clear on is the abattoirs. And, you know, that's sort of where this problem started for you. So what, how you, what about that part of it?
0: The thing that happened with the abattoirs was when they limited their staffing to two-thirds because of transmission risks, which abattoirs were one of the biggest transmitters globally. So that's why they cut the, the rostering down. The rule was they weren't accepting any, um, any livestock off small producers but account holders could keep getting processed. Now, they won't give accounts to farmers. The accounts go to the butchers. So now that we've got an account with the abattoir being a butchery, we can send off our beasts and beasts of our customers under our account. We're no longer a small producer or an account holder.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. So, so we've
0: built a bit of security into the system. Okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, and how far away is the um, abattoir from you in Albury or where the farm is?
0: Wangaratta, so it's less than an hour's drive from Albury.
1: All right. Yeah, that's that's pretty close. Because um, we we had recently on the podcast Jane Newgreen, who's set up Provenir, which is a on farm butchery, which is so incredible. And and as yes. you uh, may well know, she's also working with regenerative regenerative farmers and grass fed beef. Um, you, you know, is that do you? I mean, what do you think of that? Like, t- talk a bit. Like, I guess yeah. Tell us about the abattoir system and what you think about it.
0: Well, look, I absolutely love what proven is done and you know more of it needs to happen and those guys are absolute i've seen i've seen, sat in a few of their uh, presentations over the last sort of year or so and i absolutely love it and there needs to be more of it and those guys are such crackers that they're just going to get more and more on the ground like they're real doers and I, uh, it's just you know awesome but the problem for me is when they turn up on the farm and process the meat becomes theirs i can no longer take it to sell to my customers so they turn up on site, get the permissions and they, they buy the animal, process it on site and sell it through their channels. So it's a, it's, a step, it's a step better than turning up at the sow yards and auctioning off, you know, and basically gambling away your last 12 months of hard work as a primary producer. You know, when you go to the sow yards to sell your steers, your bread for the season, you're really gambling because it goes to auction. You don't know if you're going to make a return or not till it sells. At least if you're selling through an avenue like Proveneer, You've got a relationship with your customer and, you know, there's negotiations and, and security into that system. But I want to take the system a little bit further and put the farmers in contact and in, in control with their own customers and just make the processing part of that uh, really easy. So the, the the abattoir that we use, Gather Coles and Wayne, you know, I've got nothing bad to say about them. They're good people, but I would love to be in charge of that process myself. And we've got a little, a little goal off in the distance of, um, you know, building our own micro abattoir We're currently there's a few farms around the area that are in a very sort of rural ag zone um, that we're looking at purchasing so that, you know, we want, we need something in a specific zoning where we would be able to get the permissions to build a small abattoir. Um, so that is something that we'd like to extend our process through before, because I think, you know, uh, abattoirs can be done better. There can be more transparency. I was reading the other day about a ab- I think it's somewhere in America and one of their street facing walls is entirely glass, you know, so people can see what happens inside and that's the sort of stuff I like be, be, you know, run your business in a way that there's nothing to hide. I love that. So that's sort of, you know, that's off. We're not big planners. We sort of just do things as they happen, take, take advantage of opportunities, but that is, that is a little goal off in the, off in the distance that I'd love to be able to, you know, do because we don't have many options as producers in the area. We've got, the Wang Abattoir, and apart from that, you have to go basically all the way to Melbourne or all the way to Sydney to get your beef done. And you know the, the food case has become completely unrealistic.
1: Yeah, and a Provenier only deals with cattle. Um, and you, uh, at, and you've mentioned all the other animals that you've got on the farm. I mean, what have you got? Different plans for the other livestock?
0: Well, we like as a, as a farm, we sell them direct to um, consumers as well. And the abattoir that we currently have an account with except, uh lamb. Uh, pork and beef they accept them all through their gates Uh, so I think I think the provenir. I think the reason they just accept beef is probably a little bit of marketing thing because they're going for the beef market and because they're such a small mobile abattoir it's in a trailer. It probably really needs to be purpose built to handle the one sort of livestock it just makes a lot of sense that they just really focus on that niche where they are but I I can definitely see those guys having uh, you know trucks for pigs in the future and that sort of thing why not
1: Mm. I mean, I guess what you've sort of pointed to is with the abattoirs and the fact that then small farmers couldn't get their meat to market. It, it, we really did see the fragility of our supply chains uh, highlighted during COVID. Um, can you talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We we watched it crash in real time, and I reckon half the society out there's forgotten already. We, you know, we we basically learnt the hard way that supermarkets carry three days worth of stock on the shelves. And and that's not a that's not a sort of a made up weird statistic, but like you can you can Google this and find this. And people have been talking about it for decades. Um, as a business owner, I'd love to have that sort of stock turn. Wouldn't you love to turn your inventory over hundred times a year plus? <laughs> that had absolutely tickled me fancy. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a fragile system and when people go in and they buy, you know, two, three, five times the amount they normally would, it just crashes really quick. And that's why as a direct sales unit, what we try to talk to our customers about doing is buying a half a pig or a quarter of a cow or a whole lamb and letting us break it down and package it in a way that they can deep freeze it and have a, have a year's worth of meat in their uh, freezer. You know, from the start of the pandemic uh, basically all the way to now, I've been in the supermarket twice personally, and that was just to get nappies. I've got a three year old son and my wife's um, due in about three weeks. And it's just to get nappies because we have our, we have, we have a larder at home, you know. We have a pantry with bulk rice and bulk wheat, and we're not we're not preppers. We just hate going to supermarkets, and we love cooking. We cook a lot. We cook a lot of things from scratch, and you just need to have that stuff at home. You know, we've got freezers full of um, cubed up bone broth and all sorts of good stuff to get through. <laughs> we're we were ready for a pandemic in that sense. So I was trying to educate the customers. You know, you can't rely on Safeway if if something like this happens. Um, all the scotch fillets going to be sold out in four hours flat, and we, you know what are you going to do then? Whereas the alternative is you could support your neighbor. You know, everyone, everyone, especially in towns like Auburn, everybody knows a farmer. Everyone grew up with a farmer. Why not let them get the full retail dollar for all their work? You've got a guaranteed transparent farm because you know them of, about the produce that you're getting. You're su- supporting local business. You're supporting higher animal welfare because you can look the farmer in the eye. You can visit the farm. And then you've got food security at home. You've got a year's worth of produce in your house. It teaches you to cook in a way that honors the animal more. So people that are becoming a little bit, uh, you know, vegetarian sensitive or vegan sensitive, I completely, um, I get, I get all this, the sympathies. Like I, I hate the way a lot of the food system and the confined, feed, confined feeding operations treat animals. So this is a real way to sort of put your money where your mouth is and support locals that look after animals, right. And, and learn how to cook the whole animal and not just be a person that just eats prime cuts or just uses bits and pieces. I just think that there's so much, Goodness, and the reality is, is you if you buy a quarter of a beef off a farmer, maybe fifty kilos of beef that'll last your family a year. It's probably cheaper than buying your beef cut by cut all year long as well. Like it might be a thousand bucks up front, but over the course of the year, I'm pretty convinced. Especially if you're buying half decent quality meat from a butcher or something, it'll be cheaper as well. So it just ticks all the boxes across the whole board. And I love when I love it when somebody sends me an email or, or gives me a phone call. I'm thinking of buying beef. I say to them, "You're sitting down. Let's go for a journey. I can't wait to." You know, just tell you all the pros and cons. It's just such a great system to be a part of.
1: Yeah, that's so lovely. I mean, you, you, I guess the, st- the stories you're telling, they do uh, relate so much to community and to country communities. Can you talk about the, how community has, has played out in Albury-Wodonga with all the various things that you've, you've been through? Uh, what's been, what, what have you noticed is really strong and what's, what's a little bit um, in trouble?
0: Well, if we think pre-COVID, you know, start of 2020, we had the bushfires and they were very close to us, January, February, and that hit our businesses a lot harder than uh, COVID did in the beginning uh, or or at all to be like we had two months of trade where our revenue across the board was 80% down. And, you know, when you're in in hospitality, if you're trying to keep your staff on the books and your revenue is 80% down, you know, you're in trouble, You're, you're hemorrhaging. Mm -hmm. and and same in the bike shop like our wages in in retail in the bike shop are 20 percent of our revenue so there was no money left for anything and that was two months of no support from the government like there was no stimulus and all these things and not that i want those things but it's just painting a picture as to how that for communities that were regional and affected by bushfires you'll actually find a lot of people found that a lot harder than the subsequent covid challenges when all of a sudden because it's maybe um, national and it's a bit political they're shelling out money and giving everybody job keeper and telling banks to put the loans on hold and all this sort of stuff so when when they actually came through we didn't qualify for any job keeper but we got some uh, pay as you go help and, and we got to negotiate our bank loans a little bit and that gave us a lot of reprieve from the bushfires we we're finally able to take a breath from that and you know not only was it oppressive the smoke in town and the and the animals on the farm were really struggling, but it was hard on the businesses. And then COVID came and I sat all the staff down right at the start and we went through all their personal finances because we thought we were going to be shut down. And I said, look, I've got about 50 staff across my businesses. Uh, about 20 of them are salary earners. And I said to everybody, if, every, if we get shut down and we can't trade and, and you're all cashing in all your sick leave and all your un- annual leave, I'm three or four weeks and I'm done. I can't keep going. So we sat down and we budgeted with all the staff how much they'd need to get by, banking on we didn't know if there was any government assistance or even if we were going to get shut down. And having that um real time in the trenches with my people was was tough, but it was really beautiful. You know, you're talking about community aspect, like to actually be sit down with your staff and be really transparent about your business and say, I don't have any idea, but I want to help you. And if you can survive on two days pay and you can survive on three with all of our different circumstances, we'll pull pull through it together. And thankfully, we didn't need to do that because we didn't get shut down as hard as you know you guys did in Melbourne. But that was a beautiful, you know, community aspect. And the other thing I said to all my staff is, we will not be closing um, voluntarily under any circumstances. Like if it's mandated, you do what you have to do. But voluntarily shutting is 100 percent not what we'll be doing because there's too much online. There's too many livelihoods. You know, we're paying too many mortgages. We're putting too many kids through school as a business. And it was, and I said to all the staff, you know, you don't have to come to work, but my, myself and my family, we're going to keep keep mowing, keep mowing, moving along to make sure everything's happening as best as we can. And to have the, I was very transparent about all this stuff on social media as well. I did, I did daily lives for almost six weeks talking to our customers about how we were um, counteracting things. And it was just amazing. The, the, Danny, the amount of people we did, we changed our uh, menu overnight from dine-in to takeaway, and we added deliveries And the amount of people that were buying stuff just for the sake of it, just to help us get along was just the most, it was the most beautiful thing. And I actually sit at the back of my house now, and I've got a little bit of a um, view of the estate that I'm in. And I look out there now and I know about 20 of those houses that I didn't know before COVID because I did deliveries of our meals to those houses during the early days of COVID shutdown. So I look out over this view, Mm. which just used to be rooftops. And now I look out there and I, I see a village and I see a community. So I've become really passionate about uh, you know, when, you need to, when you need to buy something, it shouldn't be um, what's the shiniest color that I like the most or what's the best price. It should be who is in my street that I can support. And if there's no one in my street, what about my town? And if there's no one in my town, what about my state? And really working from the inside out because when, when freight lines get shut off and supply chains fall apart, you know, the door you're going to knock on when you need some eggs is your neighbor. So if your neighbour could have sold you a car because they they have a car dealership, why are you driving 400k's to shop them for 2,000 bucks? You know, support your neighbour because one day you're going to need to knock on their doors to buy some eggs and that you know to borrow some eggs and that's happened. You know, and everybody's lived through that the last six months. So um, the the community thing's there, but I think as business people we have a role now to um, respectfully and tactfully um, stick to our guns about why as a local business we are worth more. And and we need to do it in a way that's the way to do it respectfully and honestly is by being transparent with our customers. And you have to actually be a good local business. You can't just be a local business that sells stuff and then aligns your pockets and goes and blows all your money overseas and imports all your own infrastructure from China and everything. You know, you've got to you've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. So be a good local business and then when people wanna shop you or go overseas and buy their products or whatever it might be or a big one in our region is go down to Melbourne and buy your pushy or go down to Melbourne and buy your car you know it's time for local businesses to prove while they're why they're worth keeping the dollar local and you know what better time than now to do that like COVID has given us a yellow brick road opportunity to have that conversation with our customers which is sorely needed I think.
1: It's so interesting I mean that transparency it sounds like just, you know, to start the pandemic by doing these lives, it sounds like that didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, is this is this um, being so open about things and being so communicative, is that something that you just turned on or is, it a, is that a thread through all of these various uh, businesses?
0: Oh, we've been very, you know, active on social media and I love getting on live and waffling about things and talking rubbish to all my customers. They get on, we have a laugh together. I've been I've been sort of operating like that for years, but I like um, you know I like listening to my base and either doing what they tell you they want. You know, I, it always baffles me that these big stores like Myra or whatever might hire secret sensors to go in and shop their secret shoppers to go in and have an experience and then fill out a form and tell them what their experience was. I've got friends that do this and they get paid good money to do it. When if they just went on Google and read the reviews about their business, they'd find out everything wrong pretty quick you know, that that sort of thing. Just listen to your customers, listen to them. And if the customers have it wrong, tell them. Like I I, I get negative reviews on my businesses from time to time on Facebook or Google or TripAdvisor. And I'm known around the area, around the traps um, for writing essays back. And you can just Google any of our businesses and, and go sort by lowest and look at all the one-star reviews and read my essays replying to them. And I'm not trying to feed it to them. I'm not arguing. I'm just painting a picture like I'm a person my business is full of people, we're genuinely doing the best we can and maybe what you're expecting of us in this particular circumstance is not realistic and here's why and just trying to actually have a dialogue, I'm not trying to fight or say we're perfect because sometimes I'll concede, I'm like, you know what, uh, we should have done better, we really screwed up and I'm really sorry you had that experience, let's talk about it, how can I fix it for you but I've always been really open into um you know being open with my customers and having that dialogue with them especially the negative ones you know more than anything you can't just reply to everybody that thinks you're great and ignore the people that you know think you might need to be taken down a peg so big about having a a community and actually having a base around your business uh and that's a two-way street isn't it like (laughs) you can't just go support us we're local and then log off at five o'clock and 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 not want to engage with anybody that think you might be able to do better in certain ways, or they might just genuinely have a question about why you do things. You can't take it to heart. You've got to have that conversation with them.
1: Uh, so in the context of this, you know, rich web of community connection that you established and fostered during the, um, the lockdowns, how did this closed border play into that? How did you negotiate the fact that you couldn't be with a whole bunch of people that probably wanted to get to you and perhaps that you wanted to get to as well
0: well the closed border thing happened in a few different stages so right right at the start when they shut it down they introduced the uh, a border bubble which was a you know just basically a few postcodes really close to themselves and if you had a certain job and you, you and you could fill out a pass and you could get across back and forward So I had, I think, in that first shutdown of the border, I had maybe seven staff that couldn't get to work because they were outside of the bubble and didn't have the right permissions. Even if they were inside, because you know, hospitality and retail don't rank high on the uh, essential workers. When you start talking about health workers and the stuff, so that was tough. But that was only a few days. It was only it was only three or four days, and they started um, actively working to add suburbs or add postcodes and add tasks. So pretty quickly. After a few days of the first shutdown, I had a couple of staff in Wodonga, right in central Wodonga that could come to work. So what we would do, so they had the appropriate paperwork and a lot of our customers didn't. They couldn't bring a bike over to get serviced or they couldn't pick up meals. So what we were doing was getting our staff that were coming to work to do deliveries on either end of their shift. So on the way to work in the morning before they came across, they'd pick up all the bikes that needed to be serviced that were booked in. And on the way home, they'd deliver them all and they'd deliver all the meals that they could um and then as the as the restrictions got bigger and bigger, you know we're problem solvers as business owners aren't we like people ask me what my, I'm not on the roster on any of my businesses. they go what's your role i'm like i'm the firefighter I'm just here to problem solve you know and get creative and and you know find find ways that you know should I really be doing that? I don't know no one's going to say no, so I'll just get into it so that was the way so as it got restricted more uh, uh, less restricted and and the suburbs opened up, we just did more and more of that sending staff over doing deliveries. I was doing a heap of them myself. Since I don't really have a, a, a roster per se, I was one of the more flexible ones to be able to deliver all the home cooked frozen meals we were doing and, and do bikes and deliver beef and all sorts of crazy stuff, which was fun. It was actually fun being able to do a live and say we got these new meals and then orders come in and then you know four or five hours later I'm delivering them. And they're like, oh I've appreciated your video. And when people say stuff to me like that, I look at them and first thing that I comes to my head is what video? It takes me a second to sort of cotton on what they're talking about. I'm like, what are you? Talking Oh, that video, thanks. I appreciate you watching. You know, people actually watch those? What are you talking about?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, Were you scared at any time about about the virus escaping from Melbourne and hitting you in Albury-Wodonga?
0: No, not really because I knew, you know, the – if we would have qualified to for JobKeeper and all of a sudden got all these sort of unspoken concessions, like all of it, if you shut down, and I'm really not trying to make light of people that have shut down, because I would much have preferred to have stayed open like we've had, but if that would have happened, um, especially on the back of the fire, like it would have almost been nice to have taken a breath. Um and we've got we've got so many different things, like we hang our hats in so many different industries that we would have made do, you know, we're we're fighters, we would have got in there and made do. But I really am glad that we were able to keep trading because it was obviously the the easier um path for us. But I, I was pretty confident that we were going to stay open uh the whole time. And it sounds a little bit um perverted almost, but I almost you know, I I, I appreciated the opportunity to struggle and have a challenge. You know, you listen to the great stories of our grandparents that have gone through wars and obviously this is nothing on that. But I really feel like you learn your lessons as a person, as a workplace culture, as a community culture, having gone through struggle together. You know, easy street, everyone becomes lazy. So when it first happened, that's when I was sitting down with the staff or balancing the books and organizing everybody. I was sort of dressing it up as, you know, guys, this is a real opportunity for us to show each other what we're made of, and I had a few star flake. I had a few quit early on, they just had nervous breakdowns and went home and you know couldn't handle it, which is fine. That's you do you, and we'll do us. But I was, I was sort of a little bit, you know, the appetite was excited about really being able to prove our worth. We have competitors in town, and you know, one of the things that I think cuts us above the competitors is, um you know, we'll work, we will outdo it. We had a bike shop closed years ago in town and as soon as they announced they were closing, I went and I hired all their staff. And I remember sitting down with one of them at dinner, maybe a year later, and there was a new store opening in town, again, and he goes, are you worried about them? I said, no, and he goes, why not? I said, I'll outwork them. And I just remember he looked me in the eye and he just held my gaze about four or five seconds and he goes, I know, I believe you. You know, we're, we're doing it together. You know, I'm just, you know, there's 24 hours in a day, <laughs> yeah. pick one, you can always get stuff done and there's there's no job too little or no task too big. You just need to get after it. So it's something else that makes me think about, you know, out what riffing off what our grandparents went through. I, I recently read a book by an author, James uh, Rebanks, I hope I said his name right. And it's, a, it's the good life as a shepherd or something, i butchered the title, but it's the the shepherd's oh, life or something, yes. and I, uh, he's a beautiful author, and I really enjoy listening and yeah. reading his books. I've just actually bought his latest one, um, and he mentioned there's a, there's a passage in that where he talks about talking to the old farmers as he was so he's maybe in his forties now, when he was a young man walking on the working on the farm, he's talking to the grandfather generation and these were guys that were around during the first world war and they were reminiscing about the price of their meat during the first world war cuz it meant that the english uh, citizens could no longer buy the spanish and french and italian produce and made them buy local so they were so they had a good trade in their farms and I thought how sad is that we learned that lesson in world war 1 you know that that when a war happens you no longer can you go and have all these exotic frivolous things isn't it funny that things are always exotic when they're from further away but the things next door are never exotic that does my head in but you know people want to support france or whatever but then the world war one happens all of a sudden they learn to value their neighbor and then it probably happened again in world war two and who knows how many times since so i'm on a bit of a personal mission to you know read about those situations and, and those and those anecdotes and those happenings in history and and Wrap them up in a little tight little package about, and now that's happened to us in COVID, and it's probably going to happen again in five years. So instead of running away and spending your money on stupid stuff, let's all keep it local. So next time, you know, we're a little bit stronger for it, we're a little bit more better for it. And when you do need the butcher, like the butchers in town were staying open till midnight to prep meat so their customers had meat for the next day, whereas Safeway um, and, and Australia Post and all these big businesses were refusing to pay overtime. So everybody just went without. You know, so who, who's more valuable in that situation? So we need to think about these situations where local um, community and local business and local people really prove their worth and remember them. And we need to articulate them when we're talking to our customers and, you know, sort of wrap them up in this community package. And this is why we're all better together, guys. And let's go on. And then you actually, you know, I just think there's something beautiful about knowing the person you buy stuff off to. So I'm back to supporting local, but I'm just so passionate about it. You know, there's just so many, I just think it's, it's, there's pros, there's pros, there's pros. I just can't find any cons from it.
1: Well, it, it makes sense that, you know, we sort of started where we began because that's, um, that's that beautiful loop, isn't it? Of buying local, supporting local, living living yeah knowing the people that you're buying things from um yeah it's you're definitely uh yeah walking the talk jacob and it's absolutely inspiring to hear you speak about it i would recommend to everybody that um the book that you mentioned it's um james rebanks the shepherd's life it's just absolutely beautiful we'll put it in the show notes um jacob thank you so much for uh coming on and having a chat i uh wish you open borders um yeah happy customers and if they're not happy then i trust that you'll be able to t- explain you <laughs> explain the situation and talk them around but uh yeah thanks so much for coming and having a chat today
0: yeah really appreciate you having me thanks for your time
1: this is dirty linen and i'm danny Valant. we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about we spend a week thrashing around each issue